You guys, as a church, we like to observe the tradition of Advent, taking the month of December to focus on and celebrate the coming of Jesus. And a lot of our sermons right now are kind of based on that. And this year, the way we've structured that is we've decided to take the approach of looking at specific verses in Scripture that begin very explicitly with Jesus came in order to. So really asking the question, why did Jesus come? What did he come to do? What was the purpose of his coming? And what we found in preparing this is that there are, there's no shortage of scriptures that very explicitly try to answer that question, right? We've seen um, the passage that for the Son of Man came, not to call the righteous, but sinners, right? That the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So look at the idea um, that Jesus came for very specific Reasons And one of those reasons that's clearly stated in Scripture, we see in these verses in 1 John, um, that he came in order to take away sins, and he came in order to destroy the works of the devil. And so what you've kind of got there is um, two different verses that talk about redemption or atonement in two different ways. And so the first one is more of a um, what we might call the objective view of atonement. That's historically what this has been called. It's the idea that um, Christ has come to redeem us, to save us, to justify us, that we were in peril. We needed saving. We needed to be justified. We needed to be cleansed. And Jesus came in order to do that for us. There's another outlook on atonement, on why Jesus came and what he came to do that was much more heavily emphasized in previous eras of the church that we just don't talk about as much today. So we're going to spend most of our time dealing with this. And that's this idea that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, that Jesus came in a very cosmic sense to defeat and conquer evil and the effects and the power of evil demonic forces in the world. Jesus came to have victory and conquest and defeat over those things. So both views are complementary. They're not contradictory. Um, but typically in our generation, we've tended to focus a lot over here on him coming in order to save us and not as much on him coming to defeat and conquer Satan and his power. So we're going to focus mainly on that in this text today. So this morning is going to be a little different. Um, normally we're in a passage and we really spend a lot of time walking through everything in that passage, trying to understand the context and all that. Today what I want to do is take a little bit more topical approach because I think in this area of Jesus defeating Satan, we're a little light theologically. We just don't talk about it a lot. Um, so we're going to zoom out a little and just look at different passages of Scripture that deal with that idea. Uh, but we are going to start over here on the idea that Jesus came in order to take away sins. So in order to really look at that in this passage, we're just going to ask the questions how did Jesus take away sin? What does it mean that he took away sin, and how did that happen? So we're going to see two things here. Number one, he erased sin and its effects upon us. He erased sin and its effect upon us. So Jesus came to take away sins. Part of what that means is he just simply erased sin and the effects of it. So you guys have probably seen movies or shows where there's a scene where, um, like an espionage spy type movie, where you've got a guy who used to work for, used to be in the military or work for the FBI. Now he's going to have to go undercover. And no one, if someone looks back on his record and discovered who he was before, he's going to be in grave danger. And so one of the things the 
government or whoever will do is they'll take that record and they'll just wipe it clean, right? They'll make it as if that previous life he had never existed. And that's the idea here that Jesus would take our sin and just erase it, make it as though it never happened. Scripture uses words like erased, cleansed, saved, freed. He put us in a spot as though that sin had never had a hold on us to begin with, as though it never happened. But he didn't just erase sin and its effects on us, like ignoring it, sweeping it under the rug, or just pretending that it didn't happen, right? This isn't a God deceiving himself or putting up a facade, but instead, he erased sin at great cost to himself. He did so at great cost to himself. So maybe a better, more complete illustration of this would be, imagine that you had a debt with a bank. Let's just say you had gone out and bought a car that was way more than you could afford, Maybe you lost your job, fell on financial hard times, and now you owe the bank this great debt, right? You've got this note that says you owe them this much, but you can no longer afford to pay it, but you still need that vehicle, and you're just in a really tough position. And so let's just suppose you know the manager of that bank, and you know he's a kind and generous and understanding person. So you go knowing that you're in a bad situation and you need help, and you go and kind of present this need to him. And the baker considers it and he goes, you know what, it's fine, we're just going to take care of that. You no longer owe this debt. Now, you would understand that that car is now free to you, right? It's like that debt was just erased, but someone had to pay for it. It didn't just go away, it didn't just magically disappear, but the reality is the bank absorbed that cost for you because you couldn't cover it. And that's kind of the idea of what we have at the cross, is not that Jesus just swept sin under the rug, pretending like it never happened, but he absorbed the effects of it in order to set us free from it. There's a verse in Colossians chapter 2, verse 14, that says it this way, By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So what that's painting a picture of is this. Many of you know that when Jesus was crucified, there was some sort of a plaque over his head that said the king of the Jews. And it's as though he, they were saying by putting that plaque there, this is the crime for which he is being punished, for claiming to be king of the Jews, right? That's the charge. That's the indictment. He did this, and so now he sits here, hangs here, crucified, punished for this crime. Well, that was actually a common practice that someone was crucified. They would post above their head on the cross kind of their, their debt. This is why this is happening. Because he did this, he's being crucified. So what Paul is saying here is that even though on the cross the actual physical inscription said king of the Jews, what was actually happening on a deeper spiritual reality is that Jesus was being punished for the sins that you and I committed. That th Imagine like if... All the things we had done wrong had been written on a tablet. This is the charges. This is the debt. This is what you owe. That God the Father took that and nailed that at the head of Jesus' cross so that Jesus is being crucified and punished to absorb and take away and cancel our debt and the record that stood against us. And so that record is no longer being held over us because someone else took it upon himself to pay it. Theologian Peter O'Brien said it this way, that he has not only canceled the debt, 
but also destroyed the document on which it was recorded. That when Jesus absorbed that penalty, not only were we freed from the debt, but it was as though the debt never happened. Accepted fully and finally as sons and daughters of God because Jesus absorbed the cost of our sin. 1 John 1, 7 gives us a different picture of that. and It says this. It says that his blood cleanses us from sin. And in that illustration, what you have is this picture that because of our sin, that we are not just unworthy, but we are, in a sense, dirty and defiled. And when you think of God as being this pure and holy being, that someone that's dirty and defiled by sin would never dare to approach his throne because there's an unworthiness and an inability to come before him because of the the filth and the sin and the defilement that covers us. It makes us unworthy and reprehensible to a holy and pure God because of our sin. So, I don't know if you guys, any of you have used this um, specific soap before we're going to look at, but if you've ever worked on cars and you've gotten grease on your hands, um, you know that like normal soap just laughs at you, right? Like, I don't, I don't know about you all, but like, I'm one of those guys, like when I do any, if I open a hood, I'm like covered in grease from opening the hood, right? You see these videos of guys that like tear apart a transmission and put it back together and like they've got like one little dab of grease right there and that's it, right? Like I'm the opposite. I can't do anything without getting grease all over me. Um, I'm not a mechanical guy. I don't do that kind of stuff a lot. I did grow up, though, when my dad was a farmer, so we had to change oil on tractors and wheel bearings on plows, just stuff that just got lots of grease. And I remember doing that as a kid, coming home for lunch, and my mom would look at us and be like, nope, you better go take care of that before you sit down at this table, right? Like, you are not bringing that filth to the table here. And so I remember going in and, like, the first few times and dealing with that and using normal soap, and it just, like I said, it just laughs at you. It's like, yeah, nice try, man. Like, this isn't going anywhere. But then there's this magic stuff that someone created a long time ago. This stuff right here. Y'all seen this? Gojo? It's like, it's magic, right? It's like, I remember it, my dad, this is back before the, the, the push bottles. My dad just had a tub of it. And it was just like you dip your, it looked kind of nasty, right? Because anyone who put their hand in it already had grease on them. And it's like absorbs that grease and it just looks gross. I don't want to stick my hand in there. And also it's like, it's not smooth. You know, if you've ever used this stuff, it's gritty. I mean, it's like they put bits of sand and glass in there because what it actually does, I'm convinced, is that I don't think people say like, well, it breaks down the grease particles, you know, whatever. No, it it just takes off a layer of skin so that like the grease that was on your skin, well, that skin is gone, so the grease is gone with it, right? I'm convinced that's how it works, but if you don't have that stuff, like, good luck, right? You're not going to get that stuff off of you, and I think that's the picture God is... um, giving us of Jesus' blood cleansing our sins. Is this, imagine just being filthy and defiled with sin and unworthy to come before God. And no matter what you do, you cannot get the sin and the filth off of you. It's on you. It condemns you as guilty and defiled and unworthy. And John is presenting this picture that the only way to get that off, the only thing you can use to truly cleanse and rid yourself of that is by being washed in the blood of Jesus. That by his blood, by his sacrifice and him taking the penalty for our sins, we can be rid of that, our debt canceled, our sin cleansed, and being clean and worthy to come before God because of the blood of Jesus. 
So that's kind of this half of it, right? In 1 John 3, 5, he says Jesus came in order to take away sins. Now we're going to look at the other side of this, right? This uh, classical or dramatic view of atonement that Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. So the question we're going to ask here is what works of the devil did Jesus destroy? What does that mean when it says he came to destroy the works of the devil? What kinds of things did he destroy? Well, number one is the condemning effects of sin. And we just talked about that a great deal and the idea that he came to take away sin. So that's the first thing that it means is that Jesus took away the condemning effects of sin. That was the work of Satan that Jesus took away because Satan was the one who led man, tempted man into sin to begin with. The second idea is that the works of the devil Jesus came to destroy is the flesh and Satan's power over us. So here's what that means. When, when we say, when the Bible talks about flesh, what it's talking about is the parts of us that in our sinful nature want to rebel against God, do not want to trust God, do not want to submit to God's authority. Think of the flesh as like our sinful nature, the part of our nature that is opposed to God and doesn't want to submit and trust to God on our own. John 8, 36 says this, if anyone sins, he is a slave to, this, to sin. So it's as though from the moment you and I sinned, we then became gripped by the power of sin. And really that, was, that happened even before we were born because we've inherited that nature from Adam and Eve and their sin. We've been born into this thing where we are just gripped by the power of sin, that it has enslaved us and that we cannot escape it on our own. And part of what John is saying is here is that Christ came in order to set us free from that. That's why John 8.36 says, If anyone sins, he's a slave to sin. But if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. In other words, when someone turns to Christ, there is a sense in which the power of sin, the gripping effect of sin, is evicted. And they are able to follow Christ and be conformed into his image in a way that was previously impossible or unimaginable. And if you've been following Jesus for a while, there's a good chance you've, you've seen evidence of this, right? There's a good chance that if you've been following Jesus for a while, you've seen areas where sin just had a foothold on you, where it just had a grip on you, where there were things that like, you thought there was no way out of this trap, there was no way out of this habit, this lust, this desire to give in to certain things that you just... It was inescapable. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, when you turned to Christ, those things began to dissolve. And some of those desires dissolved. And some of those attitudes of defiance were destroyed because Jesus has simply set you free from that. That's the power of Jesus' cleansing blood that cleanses us not only in our status before God, but in a very practical way. But as true as that is, it's also true that you've likely, if you've been following Jesus for even a day, seen that there's also some areas where sin still seems to have a grip. Where you hear about these verses about, yeah, Jesus has cleansed us. If anyone has been set free, he's free indeed. But like, yeah, but I still kind of feel like a slave over here. I still am having issues with this. I still keep stepping into the same stuff. I still can't kick this habit. I still can't conquer this sin, or I keep making the same mistake no matter how hard I try. So what is it? I thought I was supposed to be set free from this stuff. 
So we're going to spend some time examining this, why we feel this way, right? From a biblical perspective, it has to do with this idea of already, not yet. Um, so we could say it this way, that Satan and sin are already defeated and not yet destroyed. Satan and sin have been defeated at the cross, and yet Satan and sin have not yet been destroyed. So we're kind of living in this in-between time. The theologians call this the already, not yet. Already we've been set free from sin, but not yet have we been fully released from the curse of the law in which we reside in this broken world. And friends, I know this is like, I know we're getting in some deep waters here, and we're getting like kind of heady in some of these terms and academic, but listen, like, this, understanding this will help you make sense of life. Like, if, if all you have in your kind of theological filing cabinet is the idea that we've been set free from sin, you are going to be confused and not know what to do when you still struggle with sin. When the effects of sin, like death and suffering and sickness, still happen, it's going to confuse you. But if you have this kind of already not yet understanding of the time in which we live, that already we've been set free, but not yet have we been fully released from all the effects of sin, it will help you make sense of life and the difficulties that you encounter and why you feel the way you do when difficult things happen, whether it's natural evil or your own sin giving you fits. So let's look at the already, and then we'll look at the not yet. So already we've been set free from sin. Ephesians 2.6 actually says that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places, that because Jesus has washed us with his blood, physically we're here, but if we're believing in Christ spiritually, it is as though we are sitting with Christ in the heavenly places, no longer unworthy to come before him, but accepted lovingly and joyfully as sons and daughters of God the Father. John 12, 31 says this, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of the world be cast out. And in that context, John or Jesus is talking about he's going to the cross. He's about to go to the cross, and he says, Now is the judgment of this world. The ruler of the world, being Satan, will be cast out. That when Jesus died, something happened to the powers of Satan, that he was stripped of them, that he was cast out in a sense, when Jesus died on the cross. Hebrews 2.14 says it this way, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that's Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So here again we see this idea repeated throughout our scriptures that when Jesus died, in some sense his death destroyed and disarmed the power of Satan and death itself. So we're going to look at that in one more verse and really pick this one apart so we can kind of get an idea of what he means by that. This is Colossians 2.15. It's going to give us three things that Jesus did. It says this, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them, over them in him. So you've got these three things he did. He disarmed them, he put them to open shame, and he triumphed over them. So let's look at these three in sequence. So when it says he disarmed them, I think what that's saying is that getting at the idea that Jesus, by his righteous life, overcame and won the battle against Satan. So in other words, think of this. 
Satan's strategy, Satan's power, Satan's effort has always been directed at distracting us from God, convincing us as people not to fully trust God. Go all the way back to the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, right? Satan just starts to whisper these lies to Eve. Did God really say you can't eat of the trees in the garden? She's like, well, I mean, no, he didn't, didn't quite say that. He just said not to eat of this one tree or, or we would die. What does Satan say? You will not surely die. In other words, you can't trust him. He's not looking out for your good, ultimately. He's, he's withholding from you things that would make you truly happy. Friends, is that not the same lie we believe every time we sin? We reach out for something, or we pursue something, or we say something we think is going to make us feel good, or do something we think is going to make our lives better and more satisfying. We're believing the lie that Satan is saying, hey, look, God's holding out from you. That thing is going to make you happier than what he has. And what you have in the life of Jesus is of him disarming Satan. It's him winning that battle. So all of us have failed in that battle. Satan has whispered those lies and we believed it. And he has won, in a sense, for all of us, that battle over trying to be a person who believes in and trusts God, lives a righteous life. Jesus is the only one who went all through life and never lost that battle. Think about when he began his ministry. He'd been fasting for 40 days. Satan shows up and is like, hey, you're hungry. You're the son of God. Turn these stones into bread. But Jesus fires back, man shall not live in bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Takes him up to the dome of the temple. Hey, just bow down to me and all of the kingdoms of the world will be yours. Even at the cross, Satan is tempting Jesus to not go through with it. Peter's saying, let it not be so. And he says, get behind me, Satan. I've got a job to do. I'm going to obey my father, not take the easy way out. And in that life of Jesus, what we need to see, if we're to understand this correctly, is that that was a battle happening where the, the, the power and the strategy and the um, efforts of Satan were tempting Jesus to not fully trust the Father, and Jesus beat him. He won that battle by staying faithful and staying true to the end of his life on earth as a man. So he disarmed them. Number two, he shamed them. The idea that Christ has conquered death through death. He put them to open shame is what it says in Colossians 2.15. In fact, the New International Version says this, says he made a public spectacle of them. That when Jesus died, it's as though he made a mockery of Satan's sin and death in his victory over them. If you keep reading, he said he did so by triumphing over them in him. That word triumph means to lead in a triumphal procession. So here's, here's a picture that's painting. That's painting a picture of, think about a Roman city. Right? You've got walls around the city. You've got everyone living inside. And the general of that army of that city has gone out to battle. He's gone out to face off against a king that was a threat or somewhere they wanted to conquer. And everyone in the city has been wondering, what happened? This is going to have a huge effect on our lives, how this battle went. And then that Roman general starts coming into town. People seem like, oh, it looks like we won. And he rides in, imagine like on a white horse or a chariot, crowds of people around cheering. And just to kind of emphasize and celebrate his victory lap, he's got the king or the governor of the army, the general, in a cage behind him, making a mockery of him. 
This is what happens to those who stand against me. We won, they lost. That's the picture Paul is painting for us in this idea that Jesus triumphed over Satan's sin and death and made a public spectacle of them at the cross, showing off his victory, which was full and final. So that's the the idea of already that by his death, Jesus has disarmed them. He's put them to open shame by triumphing over them at the cross. Then we've got the idea of not yet, but we're still not fully living in that victory, right? We still deal with glimpses and struggles of sin in our lives. If it were not so, Paul would not have told us in Ephesians 6.11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And friends, that's a very real thing. Like, as decisively as Scripture paints the idea that Christ has already won the victory, Scripture also paints this very clear warning that, hey, be careful, right? Tread lightly. This is still a battle. The victory is not fully realized until Jesus comes back. You can imagine with me... um, a basketball game, okay? I, I like basketball, it's my favorite sport, so it's where my mind goes. Imagine it's like the last 30 seconds of a game, and one team has like a 50-point lead. Now, if you know anything about basketball, you know that it's like physically impossible to score 50 points in the course of 30 seconds, especially 50 unanswered points on a team that's clearly dominating you, right? In any situation, but especially on a team that's clearly, it's just not going to happen, But the game isn't over. The victory has been decided, but it's still playing out. The game's not over. Now, if I'm a coach of the winning team and we're moving on to the playoffs or something, I'm going to tell my team, hey, be careful. (laughs) Because those guys that have clearly lost, it's not above them to take a cheap shot in these last 30 seconds. Yeah, that's not going to affect the final outcome of the big picture game, but it may hurt you as an individual player. I think that's the idea he's getting at here is that, yeah, Satan's been defeated, but Man, he's still swinging, right? He's still throwing punches. He's still trying very hard to take us down. So tread lightly, be careful, be aware. Put on the armor of God. 1 Peter 5.8 says it this way. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Another way we may illustrate this reality is, again, I want you to picture the idea of two kingdoms One kingdom has conquered the other kingdom. These guys are the victor. They've taken out the strongholds. They've taken out the military bases. Everything has been destroyed. But in the center, there's one kind of fortress that's still standing. And the ruler, the power of that other nation still resides in there. He's not yet been destroyed. He's been defeated. His army's gone. He's got this one tower left, but he's in there. And if you're walking by there as a citizen of this new conquering kingdom, you better watch out because he's going to lob some stuff at you. Even though he's been defeated, he's still a threat. That's the picture I think they're painting of Satan's being stripped of his power and being humiliated and shown to be the loser and yet still one that we would do well to watch ourselves after, to watch after ourselves when we're around his area. There's a theologian, F.F. Bruce, who's speaking of this, how can Satan be both defeated and yet still to be feared? And he said it this way, How can disarmed powers still constitute a threat? The answer is that they constitute no threat 
to those who are united by faith to the victorious Christ and avail themselves of his resources. In other words, if you're putting on the armor of God, taking up the the sword um, of the spirit, putting on the helmet of salvation, taking up the shield of faith, if you are um, availing yourselves in the armaments of Christ's powers, being walking in the spirit, those things hold no real threat over you. But if you are not doing those things, they very much are a threat to you. That's why we're told to seek, continue seeking um, to be found in Christ and to be pursuing him and putting on the things of God to protect us from the attacks of the enemy. And then lastly, when we speak of what Christ defeated in his death at the cross, one of the things he defeated was death. Death itself, the kind of the crown jewel, if you will, of the curse, death was defeated by the death of Christ. And you can see there's a bit of irony there. Paul said in 1 Corinthians that the last enemy to be, to be destroyed is death. And we, we understand that, right, as Christians, man, if you've ever lost a loved one, you understand that death is still an enemy that's very real and exists, and that when someone dies, we mourn. And we, we see that as, as a very real loss. Even if it's a believer and we know they're going to be with Jesus, that's still a very real pain and a very real loss. And we can see what Paul's saying that, look, that's the thing that hasn't been defeated yet is death, but one day death will be no more. The last enemy to be defeated is death. But in that same chapter in 1 Corinthians um, chapter 15, he also makes the comment, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? So we've seen that even though we still struggle with death, ultimately we know that death is not to be feared in an ultimate sense for the Christian because we know the glory that awaits us in Jesus. The way Jesus said it in John chapter 11 was this, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. The irony of this is so thick, again, that you think of death as something that Satan and demonic forces would love, right? That's like the, the most dramatic effect of the curse of sin is death, the idea that we die. It's like their best weapon, right? The thing they probably get most excited about. And then that being the very thing Christ used to defeat them. So think of it this way. Imagine you've got, I know you've got a lot of military illustrations today. Imagine you've got a, an army over here, that kind of the one that's going to be victorious. They're winning. Then you've got an army over here who's battling against them hopelessly. They fire one desperate cannon shot thinking it's going to end the thing. It hits the wall, does some real damage, but bounces down. And then this army takes that same cannonball, loads it up, sends it back, and decisively destroys everything that's still left. That they take the thing that they thought would be victorious and send it back and destroy everything that's left. That's what happens in the death of Jesus. The very thing that might represent victory and triumph for this enemy. And Jesus ironically and dramatically uses that very thing to destroy Satan and his strongholds at the cross. Let's pray. God, thank you for um, this text today, and I pray that you would 
pray that you would help us to see that as we think of Advent, as we think of the coming of Jesus, that we would, and I speak for myself here, I'm not, and I don't claim to think this way naturally, but I pray that you would help us with this text to see the coming of Jesus, not just as him ransoming us from our sin, but also Jesus conquering and defeating um, the powers of Satan and sin on our behalf. Would you help us to understand that and walk in that reality? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.